This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Let's crack some beer, beer lovers. That's new. Yeah. I kind of like it. I do too. Well, let's do it. What you got to crack? I'm excited about this one. I think the branding on this is just super fantastic. Um, this is from Belching Beaver. Um, <laughs> I will say the branding is great, but they left themselves open to a lot of euphemisms oh, with yeah. that with that name. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh-huh. I don't think I haven't thought about a hundred euphemisms. It's a rich area. It, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also not suitable for... No. <laughs> it's no. not... They're not appropriate jokes. Not suitable for work. Uh, however, it is the Deftones Phantom Bride IPA. Mm. Um, it is 7.1. And um, they brew and can in California. Um. And I read this before, and I thought it was cool. Named after the ethereal song by the one and only Deftones, Phantom Bride IPA is a blend of Amarillo, Citra, Simcoe, and Mosaic hops, delicately balanced for the perfectly drinkable mix of citrus and hoppy goodness. A truly original Deftones slash Belching Beaver collaboration envisioned by uh, Chino Marine. Chino Moreno and skillfully crafted by Thomas Peters. Sit back and put on your headphones and drink away. I'm not a Deftones, like a big Deftones fan. Mm. So I don't know much about the band, which I think is their references there. Yeah. Well, I, they, I think it's a collaboration because they said a truly original Deftones slash Belching Beaver collaboration. Oh, so the band got to have input in the label? Uh, envisioned by Chino Moreno, which I'm curious who that is. Uh, that might be someone in Deftones. I, yeah, I would imagine. Um, uh, yep, singer-songwriter. Um, yep. Show enough. Yep. Show enough. That's kind of cool. So, yeah, he... Well, you know, we need to get a Wellhouse collaboration label somewhere. We need to talk about that off camera. We might be able to do that. We need, mm, we need to do that. Um, That would be dope. That would be dope. That would be dope. If, if we got that, we've made it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, That's the last thing left on my bucket list. I Like, we've made it. As a church, we've made it. We might be able to make that happen. Um, anyways, I'm super excited about this. Um, oh, and it also says "Cheers, Nathan," which their Nathan Nathan might be their brewer or somebody. Like I don't know, maybe, but I don't know. Um, anyways, I'm excited. Interesting. So I have a beer by Fourth Tap Brewing. Cool. That's what they're called. I want to know more of the story. I just haven't had time to read it yet. But it's called the Kung Fu Robot IPA. Nice. Which, genius. Yeah. Um, 
But it's by Fourth um, Tap Brewing, and that's really the only thing I know about it, other than it's um, a pretty heavy hopped IPA um, with a middle body and a kind of like a little bit less bitter, a little more sweet and floral kind of flavor tones, and it's 7% ABV. Dope. So, um, I, I was listening, but I had a brilliant idea. What's that? The Wellhouse Black IPA. Yeah, there's a story about the Black IPA. Uh-huh. I it's, think we've told it before, yeah, but it's not a story for today. But no, it is a story. It is a fantastic story. The Wellhouse Black IPA by St. Arnold's. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally be here for that. I would I would sign off on that. Uh, Done. Hey, St. Arnold, do you want to sponsor us and help us do a, do, do a thing? Done. Let's do a thing. All right, you ready? Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Oh. Smells citrusy. Poppy, floral, all the normal things. Ooh. All my heebie-jeebies. I really like that. Um, Ooh, I really like that. Wow. Mine's delicious. Mine is too. I would drink this again. Where is Fourth Tap Brewing located? Good question. In Austin, Texas. Hey, Done. let's go. Uh, I got to go. I, bro, it's it's like 8-7. Oh, geez. It, it's like. So it's, you want to walk me through the flavor profile a bit? So it it's very very classic IPA hop forward. Yeah. But the hops are not overly bitter. Like mm-hmm. you're not just punched in the gut with all this like harsh bitterness. Kind of like the the spring like we had last time. Or the lunch, I'm sorry not the spring, but the No, it's definitely more in your face than the lunch. But not so much as like a double. Okay. Um and it's not quite so tart and bitter and it has it has a citrus flavor in it that I cannot pin because I've never had it in an IPA Hmm. interesting I don't know what it is but it's identifiable enough that I'm recognizing it as a key flavor that I don't have a palate reference for. Yeah, you rated that really quickly. Yeah, because it's that good. Wow. And you gave it a high rating for you. Yep. I think, so, all the same things. Very classic upfront kind of IPA deal. But then there's this malty sweetness that kind of comes on the back end. Mm. And it just kind of balances everything out and just it just finishes so well. Mm. And and kind of what it leaves you with is this almost kind of uh, uh, honeyed malt. Ooh. 
like that's where that's where my mind is going. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know another way to explain what I'm experiencing right now, but it's it's really good. Can't swap. Sure. Whoa. Whoa. Ooh. Your, I see what you're saying. I wouldn't call it honey. Um, I but, don't know what I'd call it. but Yeah, I, like it, there's some sort of natural sweetness there. Yours is also, like on the front, it's harshly bitter, and then it yet softens the, like as it goes through the palate. It I, like develops really well. I'm actually not sure I like that transition, though. Oh, I actually like it a lot. I actually it, like it just, much better than I like yours. It's so harsh from one spectrum to the other, from what hits you right in the front. I think that's what I like about it. It's the development is fantastic. It almost feels like it's not blended well to me. Like, that's how harsh. Like, I like when beers develop through the palate, but, like, it's almost like an entire transformation from the front of your palate to the back. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I don't like. I don't think I like that. I actually like mine a lot more than I like yours. I'm glad because I like mine a whole lot more than I like yours. Um, and this is why this this exact reason is why this podcast exists. is called Pints and Perspectives. Yep. Because today, not only do Clayton and I have differing perspectives on the taste of our beer, we're going to offer a differing perspective on the knowledge of God than what we've been offering the last few weeks. Yep. I don't think you rated yet. No, you I'm didn't not score. Too. I think I'm seven seven. I don't think I'm as high as like eight five, but like more than normal, like better than average, mm. but it's not groundbreaking for me. Yeah. I think this one's really good. I will be buying it again and probably looking forward in a six pack. Because I think it's that good. Wow. All right. I'm glad you like it that much. I do. So knowledge in God. Or knowledge of God. Clayton, what what were you taught as a kid about the knowledge of God? That it was endless. Boundless. That he knew everything. There's nothing in the cosmos that he did not know. Yeah. That's the standard view of the knowledge of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it's rooted in, as we talked about, right? I, I told you over the last few weeks that I don't have that kind of construct of God's knowledge. Yeah. But the majority of Christians have this construct of God's knowledge that he is supremely knowing and knows everything. And in that, it's a conversation, as all of these things are, between transcendence and imminence. Right. The more God knows, the more power God has, the more transcendent he becomes, the more above us, other than us, and the less he knows and the less power he has, the more like us, the more imminent he becomes. Mm. So the traditional view of God has been that God is uber-transcendent and therefore all-powerful and all-knowing. 
this really came to a head for you in high school or for the few years of early high school when you showed up at the new church when you moved to this area. Yeah. You want to tell a little bit about that story and your experience with all of this? Yeah. Um, so the, the question of God's knowledge, um, had never really been a question for me at that point. Um, but I moved to a new area and got integrated into a new church, um, that was firmly rooted in, in reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, and that narrative, God has to be uber transcendent. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is the not, most transcendent. Yeah, he must be the most transcendent. Of all the theological systems and constructs, it's in Reformed theology that God must be the most transcendent. Right. But the way that it was talked about was almost like God was the most transcendent, but Jesus became the most imminent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... And, so like there's this really weird thing there but um i ended up in a place where i was like okay actually this narrative makes sense god being the most transcendent and jesus being the most imminent and god knowing all the things um but also still jesus has to know all the things even though he's here with us right like and he is Oh the so most they imminent. would say he they would have told you that jesus knew all the things yeah more, more, Ooh. more than likely, yeah. Oh, um, which I now look back on and see. Well, they're just not good readers of their Bible. That is just that can't be true. Yeah, they're just not good readers of the Bible. Luke, Luke, the beginning of Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, yeah, or knowledge and stature. Like he can't know everything if he's growing in it. Yeah. Either way, there was this weird thing here happening. Um. So, yeah, that was kind of my experience. But then coming out of that, I started deconstructing a little bit and started seeing the the, the problems with this narrative um, and start coming off of, off of that. And I'm like, okay, there's something about this for me that's not working. I just didn't know what it was. Yeah, so, I mean, that system, just like any system, can break down for people for a number of different reasons it the knowledge of god's actually not or god's knowledge actually isn't a problem for most people in that tradition yeah um and in fact it's an element of comfort mm-hmm. oh yeah for sure that god knows everything is a because god knows everything i don't have to know everything well and i'm safe because i know that god's going to take care of me right. and he knows everything right so, like, okay, that, you know, I could understand why you would want to be there for sure. For sure, yeah. Um, narratively, there are many places you can point to about God's supreme knowledge. One of them, which I actually think is a fascinating story, I'm going to look it up, is in the beginning of Jeremiah. Do you remember this, Clayton? I don't remember this. Oh, I think so, but I want to see where you're going with it first. All right, Jeremiah 1. Yeah. 
Verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in uh, Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in these days of King Josiah, son of Amnon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. All that is is just... Like giving you context date and time markers yep. that's all that is and if you're looking for it jeremiah is a contemporary of hulda the prophet during the reign of king josiah in the um second exile period verse four now the word of the lord came to me saying before i formed you in the womb i knew you and before you were born i consecrated you i appointed you a prophet to the nations i'm i'm actually going to let clayton take this one because um not only does this speak to the knowledge of god Mm -hmm. this also speaks to the reformed tradition that clayton now rejects yeah um that was a very big argument for a lot of the Reformed friends that I still currently have, um, or some of them. Um, before you were born, or before I formed you in your mother's womb, I called you, right? Um, I, I consecrated you um, is... The, the wording there that everybody seems to, to stick to. Um, <clears throat> I set you apart. I made you different, right? That kind of speaks to... Uh, and and sorry, to no, affirm Clayton's point, I, I'm not reading a translation that is given over to Reformed theology. No. If you did read a translation that was given over to Reformed theology, like the ESV or mm-hmm. the... Um, HCSB or the um, CSB, all of those, that word consecrated would be predestined. Right. Um, which is exactly what it goes back to is predestination of salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where our Reformed friends would, would like to take that. Um, and honestly... Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, what? Because even this word here, consecrated, it still is saying something about the knowledge of God, knowing that Jeremiah was going to be born and that he knew that he was going to do something with him, and so he makes him special in some way. Yeah. Um, so in my place of deconstruction, I don't know what to do with that. Today. Today, in this moment. Oh, it's easy. It's easy. Every time someone has a new kid, do they not ooh and awe over that kid and go, oh my gosh, they're going to be great. They're going to change the world. I'm setting them apart for something great. I'm going to start their college fund tomorrow. Yeah. Does not everyone who has a kid set out with the the absolute most optimistic view of that child? Sure. Okay. Done. I set them apart even though I didn't actually do anything. Interesting. It's not, I mean, you, now, this is not, 
this is not a conversation about how I resolve right. this text. Right, 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 but you right. brought up the question that I, in your own deconstruction, you don't know yeah. how to deal with it. You that, were, you seemed like you wanted me to expound on that a little bit more. And I was like, beyond giving the reformed answer, I don't know what to do with this. Well, that's actually what I wanted you to do was give the reformed answer because we're trying to faithfully walk out their position. Right, right, right. Which is their position is, is that God is supreme. Sure. The supremacy of God as the ultimate transcendent being is above all else. Yep. And so in his uber transcendence, he is all-knowing. And in his all-knowing, he not only knows who's going to be born, but what they're going to do. And not just like what their major life decisions are going to be, but every decision that, they're going that they make. ever make, he knows. Yeah. And as I pointed out in one of the episodes I did in the self-limited version of this understanding of the knowledge of God, there are many a times where God can't seem to make up his mind. Am I starting over with you, Moses? Am I abandoning the covenant I made with Abraham? Mm. Am I starting over with you? Am I killing all those people down at the bottom of the mountain? I regret making Saul king. Yeah. Right. There are times in the narrative where it goes, hey, I'm not sure that God actually has that. But in a reformed tradition, they would point to texts like this. Yep. And they would go, oh, no, God has supreme knowledge. Mm -hmm. God knows everything. Well, and also like the text or, or the psalm, uh, I know when you rise and I know when you go to sleep. I know the, mm -hmm. the number of uh, sands on the beach shore. I know the number mm -hmm. of hairs on your head, like all those things. It's interesting that you bring up the song. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important because it it does show how we all ended up where we ended up. Clayton, what, what's the Christian song that I hate more than anything in the world? Oh, I'll fly away. I'll fly away. I, I literally cringe every time I hear that song played. I'll fly away. But the reason is not necessarily just because I hate the song. <laughs> I do hate the song, but it's because historically... People remember the theology you sing more than the theology you preach. Yeah, that's true. As proof by you just quoting the song of knowing of God's knowledge of everything. Mm -hmm. We build our theology based on our songs. Lots of times, yeah. That's what most people do. And I, I say it all the time when I'm talking to like young pastors who are doing traditional church, which I don't do anymore and don't really have much of a desire to go back to. I really love what we do at Walls. I don't yeah. want to go back to the traditional church model. But I tell them all the time, like, bro, you can be the best, best preacher on the planet. Nobody's going to sit through bad music to listen to good preaching, mm -hmm. but they'll sit through good music to listen to bad preaching. Yep. No, it's true. Like your music matters and it's, it's because like we like, well, lots of times I th and I think this is what you're trying to say. Lots of times the music is an interpretation of the, of scripture that is digestible for people. Correct. And that's why they remember it better. Mm -hmm. Cause the other part is, let's be honest. I, I'm a communicator. Yeah. 
I consider myself a good communicator, not because I'm more well-trained than anybody else, but because I know my own limitation. I'm never going to take a platform and speak for more than 45 minutes. Right. I'm never going to take a platform and probably speak for more than 35 minutes. Yeah. Because I'm not a good enough communicator to hold everybody's attention for that long. Very few people are. Correct. But how many sermons have you ever sat through where people preach 40, 50, an hour? I've sat through a two-hour-long sermon before. So. Yeah. Yeah. Why do people build their theology off of music? Because it's all they it's remember. The th- yeah, they're not remembering your sermon that was an hour and a half long, bro. Yeah. No, they're not doing it. So that's like, I wanted to point that out because you right. brought up the song. But I do think this this rings true no matter what, that for people that want and need God to be all-powerful, and all knowing, I don't. I don't think that they set out in some kind of malicious attempt. No, not at all. And I actually think they set out with it being a voice of comfort. Yeah, that God knows everything, and so I am protected because God knows everything. And I, as is evidence in this text right here. Right. And I don't. And, and hear me on this. I don't think that's an invalid place to be. Not at all. It, like, it, it's not outside the creeds. It's not outside the creeds. I personally am deconstructing that idea right now. I have no idea where I'm going to fall. You might fall right back there. I might. But um, I, I'm just asking questions right now. I still think it's a very valid position to hold. It is. I, I don't... I, I can't hold it for myself. Yeah. But... I don't fault people that hold it. I mean, one of my best friends is a card carrying. What does that even mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> he he literally has the degree from Southern. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like true. he is card true. carrying reform theology. Mm. Not only Which, does he have a degree, he has the degree, the doctoral degree. Right. Which we'll talk about that later. Which, um, so, so, Reformed theology is not the only form of theology that talks about this idea of God's all-knowingness. No, it's not. It's the um, easiest one to pick on because... Right. And not pick on. It's the easiest one, one to, to use, use as, as the case example. study yeah. because they have the most transcendent view of God. It, and it, honestly, their entire narrative revolves around God's transcendence. Mm-hmm. Um, it like is rooted in the fact that God does know everything. Well, God it, has to know everything. Yeah, it's 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 so ingrained that the system's actually dependent upon it. That's what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. that is the whole problem. And when you start asking questions about God's knowledge, that's when the foundations start to shake. Well, any part of God's transcendence. Yeah. When you begin to make God imminent in any way other than Jesus you begin to have some dilemmas. Yeah. Um, but I stand by it. I, I think it's a valid position. I, I think too. people that hold it are, are going to be and yeah. are in fellowship with Jesus in this moment. And I, I think that by and large, they are people who care for humans. I think oh, I by and large, they are people of good faith And by and large, what I would say is, of the ones that I've met, 
more times than not. The knowledge of God is so important to them, not because they need God to be the most powerful being, but because God's knowledge as supreme being makes God the best caregiver and protector of his people and creation. Yeah. So think about it like this. If you believe that God knows everything and you believe that God is for you because you are for him, you will have no fear getting into your car and driving to work or doing anything because you know that God's got a plan. There is so much comfort in being able to rely on God's faithfulness to us. There is a hundred percent. I would love to be able to get there. Yeah. I just can't. Yeah. Um, but absolutely. I think by and large, the people that have a transcendent view of God's knowledge actually have the easiest time resting mm. in the arms of the Lord.